Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. I'm Tim Harford, and you're listening to My Millennial Money. Hello, Australia. Welcome to My Millennial Money. I'm Glenn James, and I don't get this excited that much, but I'm so pumped for this episode. Just on Tuesday night, our time, I recorded this episode with Tim Harford. He's an economist. He's a columnist uh, who writes for the Financial Times. He's out of the UK. He's an author. He has a podcast, which happens to be my favorite podcast called Cautionary Tales. And he's just released a book called How to Make the World Add Up looking at how we can see numbers and statistics and understand them and see if there's some type of agenda behind them and really checking ourselves when we're looking at numbers and statistics. So, I'm going to leave it there. If you are new to My Millennial Money, thank you so much for uh, having a listen today. And if it's not your first episode, welcome back, grab a seat, strap in. And I thank you for everybody for your support of the podcast, everything that we do. You can find us on Instagram at MyMillennialMoney or jump in the Facebook group. And you will probably notice that I was a bit nervous, you know, this guy who I've listened to for so long and we were talking about Mars and Nathan who edited this messaged me laughing because Tim asked me what the distance from Mars was. So it's an example of that thinking fast and thinking slow, Uh, but have a bit of grace for me because I'm still trying to get used to interviewing all these cool people. So thank you so much for listening. I really hope you get something out of this. I certainly did. Well, Tim Harford, on behalf of My Millennial Money and all of the listeners and the community, welcome to My Millennial Money and thank you so much for sharing some time with us today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me on the show. No worries. And at the time of recording, uh, you're in royal drama. So how are you taking it? (laughs) Well, (laughs) I I sort of feel there's a national public health and economic crisis going on. I I suppose it's understandable that people like to distract themselves with all this. But, uh, you know, I feel we're still losing hundreds of people a day to coronavirus. The, The entire economy is shut down. The schools have just reopened. There's really big stuff going on. So forgive me if I personally have not, in fact, watched the interview. But, uh, you know, if people find it fascinating, then that's fine too. Yeah, absolutely. I was talking with a friend and I said, why are we talking about this? I actually don't care. Now, Tim, I just want to say I am a huge fan of Cautionary Tales, the podcast. And when I first found it last year, uh, a friend of mine, Chris, and I, we just could not believe uh, the production quality, the journalism, the research, everything, the cadence of speech. So pass that on to your production team and everybody. And thank oh, you to I yourself as well. It's very, it, it, very kind of you. Yeah, I mean, the, uh, the actors, the sound design, it, it's an amazing team. I feel very lucky to be, to be part of it all. Yeah. So everyone, in this interview, we will uh, we'll chat about some 
uh, things that I've drawn out and I've just started to read uh, Tim's new book, How to Make the World Add Up. And I've drawn some themes out that I want to talk to Tim about that I think will add value and I think it will make you think about the world in a different way. Then we'll talk about some points that Tim can share with us about how to read statistics, how to make life of the numbers and the facts that we get thrown on social media in newspapers. And then we might have a bit more of a chat about the new book and how it's going. And sure. we'll get you tucked in bed by uh, lunchtime today, Tim, uh, because <laughs> it's 8 p.m. here. <laughs> Sounds good to me. Sounds good. So, Tim, your day job, uh, you're an economist by trade. Uh, what does your day look like? Well, uh, the coronavirus having shut down the entire UK economy, uh, it's spent at home. Uh, but I, I have a few different gigs. So my, my actual job is that I write a column, a weekly column for the Financial Times called The Undercover Economist. And uh, that's a column where I try and use economic ideas to, to help people think clearly about everyday life. I have BBC radio programs. One at the moment running is called How to Vaccinate the World. You can guess what that's about. And there's another one called More or Less, which is about thinking clearly about numbers. And it was my work on More or Less that really got me thinking about how to make the world add up. So it's a mix of these different journalistic projects. Uh, I'm you know, researching, doing a lot of reading, talking to people, and bringing the kind of the, the nerdy approach to everyday life. Yeah. And I mean, listening to your podcast, Cautionary Tales, uh, you've managed to get all the data, get all the information and actually tell a great story on each episode. Yeah. The idea is that people like stories. I like stories. Uh, you know, I like to listen to stories. I like to tell stories. But we want to go a little further than just telling a story. I, I want to, to figure out... Cautionary Tales is, is always about something going wrong. Sometimes they're funny. Sometimes they're tragic. But in each case, I want to learn the lesson. Like, why did this go so badly wrong? What, what's, the, what's the psychological or the sociological explanation? You know, why do we, why do we make these kinds of mistakes, in, whether it's individuals or whether it's whole systems? And can we avoid making those mistakes in, in our own lives? So they vary from audacious cons to uh, airplanes being hijacked by idiots to oil tankers crashing. I and mean, there's loads, loads and loads of different, and some of them are financial. So there's, there's one about two great economists, Fisher and Keynes, and their failed forecasts of the Wall Street crash and the, and the investment lessons that we can learn from them. But yeah, I love telling the stories. And, we, and as I say, we've got some great actors. We've got Jeffrey Wright. We've got Helena Bonham Carter playing Florence Nightingale and the music and really trying to immerse people in these historical episodes. And then, of course, I, you know, I pull out the, you know, the research paper from the Journal of Economic Theory 1970 or whatever and say, well, this is, this is what's really going on here. So that's, that's really fun. Yeah, one of my favourite episodes. It's And it's probably a good starting episode for those who want to check out Cautionary Tales is the debacle at the Oscars where La La Land was announced as the winner. And Tim basically does an autopsy of the whole process of how it got to such uh, a debacle. Absolutely. And this is a thing that uh, any safety engineer, I think, can tell you is that sometimes when we put systems in place... To, to try to prevent accidents, they actually cause accidents. There's a whole literature written by safety engineers of fire alarms that caused fires and things like that. It turns out it happens, uh, Three Mile Island, for example, the famous nuclear meltdown uh, was caused by a malfunctioning safety system. There's a, there's a lot of this going on. And uh, I unpick this 
idea in the light of that amazing night at the Oscars where Faye Dunaway and Warren Beatty gave the Oscar for be- for best movie. I mean, the, the, the best picture Oscar is the most prestigious Oscar. They gave it to the wrong film. So how did they do that? And it turns out it's, well, you know, you want to be careful. So you don't want people to find out in advance. So everything's got to be super secret. But you don't want to lose the envelope. So you need to have two copies of everything. So there's two copies of every envelope. There's two copies of every winner. There's two accountants, one on each side of the stage. And so it seems like everything's super safe. You can't possibly go wrong. But of course, that just then means that, well, you've got to discard each duplicate envelope as you go through. And one of these accountants got distracted because, hey, it turns out the most beautiful, famous people in the world are surrounding him. One of the accountants got distracted. He forgot to get rid of his envelope. And so he then handed the envelope for best actress, not for best picture. And that envelope wasn't very well designed. And uh, it had La La Land on it, among other things. And so BT and Dunaway are looking at this thing. And of course, what they should have done is gone, oh, this is a bit confusing. We need to go off stage and figure out what's going on. But you the Oscars, you can't do that. You can't just go, oh, we don't know. We don't understand. So they're trying to make sense of it. And yeah, all hell breaks loose. All yeah. hell breaks loose. And they thought they, they say, oh, we're going to fix this now. What we're going to do is uh, now we're going to have three envelopes. I think, uh, yeah, maybe. Maybe that'll <laughs> work. Yeah, maybe watch this space. Yeah. And it's actually funny. I, I started writing my own book, if we use this as a segue to yours, and it was two years ago that I started writing it. And one of the first chapters is actually called A Cautionary Tale. And mm. the same premise that you... And it, I, maybe it's why I was drawn to your podcast, but... I, I spell out this story of a gentleman who came to see me in my financial planning practice at age 63 in a mountain of debt with no savings, with no uh, long-term pension or anything like that. And it's just a cautionary tale of a series of events that may have happened in his life that led him to this point. So I think we can all learn from other people's misfortune and also we can learn from other people's fortunes. Yeah. Absolutely. And if you're 63 and you've got no pension, no savings and, and debts, it's a bit late for you to be learning, but it's not too late for someone who's 33 to be looking at that or 23 or even even 53. Yeah. <laughs> you've still got 10 years. Like Absolutely. We can all look at that and go, okay, I need to make sure that uh, I, I mean, I'm sure he had bad luck and he may have made some bad decisions, but you know, how can I avoid getting myself into that situation? So I've just started your book, How to Make the World Add Up, and I'm about 20% through, so my audio player tells me, and you know, I, I get soothed by your voice, you rock me to bed, you rock me to work <laughs> in the commute and all that stuff. <laughs> and I've picked out, just in the small part of the book that I've read, four stories that I want to talk to you about because I just think it's fascinating. And the first one is about cigarettes. And I also thought it was fascinating because I spoke with an economist uh, from Cornell in the USA, uh, Robert Frank, and he's he's wrote some books and whatnot. He uses cigarettes in the way of peer pressure that cigarette smoking, it isn't, it's, it's worse for you that people who hang around a smoker might end up smoking as opposed to the passive smoking. And you've looked at cigarettes uh, with this, the seed of doubt being sown by cigarette companies. Yeah. Is, are cigarettes like the most fascinating case study over the last 60 years? 
Well, I think they, I mean, they certainly matter. I mean, but I love Bob Frank's work. So presumably the point he's, he's making is that social behavior is, is contagious. Like we, we catch behaviors, we uh, habits from other people. Mm. And so if you hang around a smoker, the most dangerous thing to you is not the passive smoke. It's the fact that you might actually take up smoking. Absolutely. Yeah, I yeah. can believe that. I, that's yeah. a fresh, it's a fresh argument for me. I've not encountered that before, but that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, it's important when you look at historical episodes, it is of course natural to, to look at the, the biggest and the most dramatic. And so very often uh, as an economist, you find yourself looking at the Wall Street crash or the Great Depression. Uh, anyone who's interested in 20th century history, of course you're going to think about learning lessons from the First World War, the Second World War, the Holocaust and the Cold War. These are the, are the great leap forward in China. These are the huge tragedies of the 20th century that you're going to want to to think about. And uh, and I think when you, we're thinking about consumer behavior, when we're thinking about lobbying, information, misinformation, there's no bigger topic, I think, than cigarettes. So that's that's a natural reason to draw me in. But that's not, in fact, what, what got me thinking about cigarettes. What got me thinking about cigarettes was this weird connection with a statistical hero of mine, the man called Daryl Huff. Daryl Huff, in 1954, wrote a book called uh, How to Lie with Statistics, which is a wonderful little book, really funny, really uh, smart, loads of examples of how statistics can be used to mislead people. And it's, uh, by some measures, the best-selling book ever written about statistics. But the more I thought about it, the, the more uneasy I became, because the fundamental message of Daryl Huff's book, I mean, all the individual examples are absolutely spot on. But when you read the whole thing, the overall impression you get is that lying with statistics is all anybody ever does. It's like stage magic. Like, don't, don't go and watch a magician pulling rabbits out of hats and and think, oh, you know, it's it's actual magic. I, I wonder, I wonder, like, you know, what kind of spell is he coming from? What extra dimension is the rabbit appearing from? Like, no, you. Of course, it's it's a trick. Of course, it's a trick. Like, enjoy the trick, but never forget that it's a trick. And that's the impression that Daryl Huff gives about statistics. And I realised that the same year, How to Lie with Statistics was published. There's also the year some of the first really compelling evidence came out that smoking cigarettes dramatically increases your risk of cancer. So that's a really important counterexample to say, no, this isn't always a trick. Sometimes this is really important. This is delivering life-saving lessons. And the twist in the tale, sadly, is that Daryl Huff, this great sort of master of statistical communication, ended up working for the tobacco companies because his brand of basically making people always think, ah, don't take it too seriously. You can't trust the data. You can't trust the experts. It's always lies. That brand of of communication was perfect for them because he was funny and people liked listening to him. And he's basically saying, yeah, I mean, cigarette smoking is correlated with lung cancer, but you don't want to believe all that stuff. And, And people did not want to believe that stuff because they were smokers. And if you're a smoker, of course, you don't want to believe that your habit's killing you. So it doesn't take much to sow the seeds of doubt. And that's really one of the reasons I wanted to write How to Make the World Add Up was as an antidote, was to say, look, you can think seriously about statistics. You can, sure, you can have fun, but they, they're a way to understand the world. And if you think they're always about disinformation, then you're making a really big mistake and you're going to make bad choices as a result of that. 
So everyone, th- uh, think about those words like sowing the seed of doubt. And I want to ask Tim about, you know, climate change, maybe a little bit about investing, maybe a little bit about uh, COVID and, and all the, the good stuff that's happening. But if we move on now, Tim, and think about some of the other examples in your book, and I want you to talk to us about the Mars orbit example. Oh, yeah. And everyone listening, start to think about the world that we see and when you see things and how you react and all that, mm-hmm. uh, because I think this speaks to uh, cognitive bias. So, yeah, if I ask you a, a simple question, which is a, how far away is Mars from the Earth? G- you know, give me an estimate. Uh, t- 20,000 kilometres, like, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's a bit it's a bit further than that. But that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> but the point is Hi, I'm glad I'm an start, idiot. Yeah. <laughs> no, but, but you start making you can start making guesses. Yeah. Um you might start um thinking, well, do I is there anything that I know that's any pieces of information I know that are useful? So you might know that the moon's about about a quarter of a million uh, I can't remember whether it's miles or kilometers, but you know, it's about two hundred and fifty thousand you know, miles away from Units. Earth, something. Yeah. Like yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm an economist, not an astronomer, and it's that yeah. sort of thing. It's like a quarter of a billion uh, miles, kilometres away from Earth, that sort of thing. So, you think, oh, Mars must be a lot further, so Mars must be like hundred, hundreds of millions of, of miles away from Earth. And then you go, oh, hang on a minute, Earth is kind of going around the sun. Remember, Galileo. Mm. Earth's going around the sun. Mars is going around the sun. Sometimes they're going to be further away. Sometimes they're going to be closer. And and you can start sort of playing with the problem and realizing it's more complicated than you realized. Uh, but by the way, this is a, a bit of a detour, but one of the f- fun things I discovered, which planet would you say is closest to Earth? Oh, it's, it sounds like you're leading me down a garden path. I'll, I'll go Saturn. Okay. It's, it's not Saturn. <laughs> you, m- most people... That's, I mean, that's bold. Okay. So I think most people would say it's either Venus or Mars. Because, yeah, yeah. you know, it's, you know, it's the sun's it's in the middle. the order, it's yeah. Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars. <laughs> I think it's Jupiter, Saturn. Yeah. So you'd think Venus or Mars because Earth's between Venus and Mars, the, the orbit of Earth's between Venus and Mars. Turns out this is going to blow your mind, but it's actually Mercury. And it turns out Mercury is the closest planet to all of the planets on average. So the orbit of Venus is closer to Earth than the orbit of Mercury, but the average position of Mercury. As you think about it, the Earth is going around the Sun, so on average, whatever is closest to the Sun is going to be closest to Earth. So Mercury is the planet that's closest to any planet wow. you happen to want to name. Anyway, that's a <laughs> big, That's just kind of a fun you know, piece of mind-blowing oh. trivia. The, the point is, though, when you start thinking about all of these things, what you're not thinking is... You know, oh, what does my favourite politician think about this? You're not thinking, uh, if you're on the right, you're not thinking, what do those stupid left-wingers think about this? They're wrong. And if you're on the left, you're not thinking, what do those evil right-wingers think about this? Because they're wrong. You're not having any of these kind of moments where like, well, what do people like me think about this sort of problem? You don't think any of that. You can just go s- cut straight to the chase and go, well, what do I know about this? And let me try and figure it out. Now, of course, if you were, uh, say, a cardinal in the Catholic Church trying to excommunicate Galileo, you would have very, very strong identity-related feelings about this claim. But in the modern world, we don't. But if I make another claim, which is uh, how, or another sort of question, 
To what extent is human activity uh, changing the climate and warming the planet? Immediately, you don't think to yourself, the, the, so, the sorts of thoughts that were going through your head about the Mars question are not now going through your head. Instead, you're thinking, what does my team think? What do people on my side of the political, political argument think? What does Donald Trump think about this? Because whatever he thinks, that's going to influence what I think. I mean, either because he's, I think he's wrong about everything or because I think he's right about everything. You know, all, all of the prominent politicians, you know, what, what does Tony Abbott think? I mean, all of these... All of these things influence our views of climate change because climate change is bound up in our political identity. And the same thing is true of, for example, certain vaccines are highly political in the States and other vaccines, they're not political at all. It's just like, you just take the vaccine your doctor says to take. Uh, so I'm really interested in the way that our cognition, the way we think, gets bound up with our identity and, and just makes us stupider, makes all of us stupider because we, we're no longer trying to figure out what's true. Instead, we're trying to figure out what is the kind of thing that people like me are supposed to think about this sort of question. And th that's true for, I mean, I have my own politics and I have my own views about who's right and who's wrong about all kinds of things. But the, the thinking process, I think, is common to a lot of people, to most people, and it just makes all of us stupider. Mm. And I, like, because I, when I was looking at that uh, Mars orbit example, I think about how can I draw that into an everyday thing that people might be talking about who are dialed in with their money and want to do better. And to me, it spoke to, you know, single stock investing and I'm going to buy these shares myself because I think they're doing good and I think that one's not doing good versus just buying an index and just keep shoveling money. Mm -hmm where the data actually says categorically, you can't in your wisdom sitting in your garage outperform the market. But why do we as a community, like, you know, you might be on some Reddit forum on Wall Street bets or ASX bets and single stock thing is your thing. Yeah. So you can't yeah, detach I mean, from that. But the Wall Street bets thing is so interesting because uh, so much of it, it was, it was about... Uh, so, so much of the GameStop bet, um, I don't know how much we need to explain to, to your listeners. I, I guess a lot of people will know, know a little bit about yeah, GameStop. But right. basically, yeah. you've got a Reddit community who uh, form a particular hypothesis about GameStop, this particular stock being undervalued, and start making bets accordingly. And, and actually, the analysis, I think, was very interesting. But what, what became clear is that after a certain point, a lot of the people making bets were not doing so on the basis of the fundamental analysis, they were doing so as a kind of statement of, like, I'm I'm in here and I'm holding diamond hands. I'm going to hold on no no matter what the loss. I'm holding because my buddies are on here and they're holding, and we've got an enemy. The enemy are the, is the short sellers, the hedge funds who are betting against GameStop, and just the whole thing has become there part of a a cultural community. It's and an identity. It's, it's fine to be part of a cultural community. You know, we're all, you know, we're human beings. We all have friends and we all have a part of cultures and we can all enjoy that. It's not obvious to me that that is going to be the smartest way to make your financial investments. Mm. Um, and I, I should say, by the way, I think even, I mean, I'm more of an index fund guy, but the very fact that I'm expressing it in that term, so like, oh, I'm a kind of index fund guy. Like so I've identified as there's a culture, there's a kind of, there's a personality type. We economists, we believe in the efficient markets hypothesis. You know, we think you can't beat the market. You know, I'm expressing it all in terms of identity. 
And, you know, when, if somebody says, oh, no, this, you should invest in this particular mutual fund, it's a really good investment. That's, that recommendation is a challenge to my basic world beliefs about the kind of things that make sense in the world. Mm. And I'll tend to reject it. Like, yeah, no, that can't be right. So we, we've all of us guilty to some extent. I think there are, there are clearly certain sorts of investment bets that attract more of this kind of thinking. So the Bitcoin bets, the gold bets for th- hundreds of years, thousands of years have been very political. They've been very cultural people who like gold. Um, but it's true of all of us. And, and again, it doesn't, doesn't help people meet their individual investment goals and and make smart decisions when in fact what you're really trying to do is express your identity as a you know as a, a bond market vigilante a vigilante as a as a the kind of person who screws with the hedge funds or any of these things this yeah. is not helping us make smarter decisions i mean it's it's just fascinating and i think that's why i want to encourage people uh, not to be an investor in single stocks, not to be an investor in index funds, not to be an investor in property, but first have the mindset, I'm an investor and then diversification. Because in Australia, Tim, everybody loves residential property investing. And there's mm-hmm. forums online, it's like property only, and then you've got shares only over here. And I'll, I'll walk into an argument and the property guys are going bang, bang, bang. Share guys and girls are going bang, bang, bang. And they're like, what do you do, Glenn? I'm like, oh, I just do both. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like disarmed. <laughs> like it's, so I, I think it's just one to really check your preconceived thoughts and identity before you make any decision, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, we're all influenced by our emotions. I, I really remember this time last year, dealing with the, the sudden realisation that this coronavirus thing was real, that it was going to shut down a large proportion of the world economy, that it was going to shut down quite a large proportion of how I personally made money, because I, you know, one of the things I do is I stand on stages in front of crowds of people and give speeches, and that's, that's a source of income for me. It's not a trivial source of income. I'm going to have to launch a book in the middle of a pandemic where there are no, no book events and no bookshops open. Wow. Uh, okay, so I'm I'm looking at all of this. I'm thinking, how am I going to pay my tax bill? Because all of these speeches have just been cancelled, uh, and my share portfolio is tanking. And and I remember thinking to myself quite clearly, fe- you're, you are feeling highly emotional right now, Tim. <laughs> and trying to observe it, you're feeling very emotional. You're afraid. I remember going out onto the street and just walking to the shops and shaking. Uh, because there was so much adrenaline going through the decision through, through my system, and coming back and saying, "Okay, you need to make a decision about what you're going to do," and I and I said, "Okay, what I'm going to do is I'm going to the stocks had already dropped about ten fifteen percent, so not a not a catastrophe, but a substantial fall." I said, "Okay, you're going to sell enough shares now to meet the tax bill that you have due in four months' time. You're going to have that in cash, just." you know, ready to go. So you know, you have that money. You're not going to sell the rest and you're not going to feel bad about whatever happens next. And that's the decision I made. And then as it happens, almost immediately, the stock market started bouncing back. So I would have made more money if I'd just held on to everything, which I think is an interesting observation. But I was always happy because I said, okay, you thought it through, you tried to calm down, you observed your emotions, you made your decision and you had your reasons for making that decision and then there's no regrets. But just being aware of your own emotions 
rather than pretending like you don't have any, I think is important, particularly when things get really nasty on the markets. Yeah, and, and I believe like any life decisions, make a decision once you've got data in front of you, once you've got a couple of A, B and C scenarios. And then once you make a decision, hang your hat on it. It's okay. Yeah. Like yeah. just own my, it. Yeah. Absolutely. Because so my, my, my logic was, well, if, if, this is, if this all passes very quickly, then I'll be fine. And it'll be annoying because I'll have lost some money, but I'll be fine. And if this really is, uh, you know, the zombie apocalypse, then uh, I'll, be glad, I'll be glad I sold a good chunk of shares when I did. Mm. Um, and in fact, it was kind of weird because it was, it was a bit of both. Like in terms of the speaker market, it was the zombie apocalypse, nothing doing for a year. In terms of the stock market, the stock market bounced back. So it's all a bit weird, but that's fine. I sort of felt, okay, I'm not, I don't regret the decision I've made. Yeah. All right, moving on to your next example, which again, I thought was fascinating. Uh, tell us about Florence Nightingale. And there was a recent podcast episode and you dug deep. And yeah. I think we can draw so many parallels uh, from her charts. Yeah. So I would recommend that people look up the the recent Cautionary Tales episode about uh, Nightingale. I think the title is Florence Nightingale and Her Geeks Declare War on yes. Death. Yes. Uh, which is, my, my producer suggested that title. I love it. And Helena Bottom Carter is playing Florence Nightingale, which is just astonishing. Like, I did not think when I started writing about economics that I would end up writing script for Helena Bonham Carter. But it turns out that the Bonham Carter family, Nightingale was part of the Bonham Carter family. So Helena Bonham Carter is actually a distant cousin of Nightingale's. That may have helped in persuading her to to participate in the project. But um, what fascinated me about Nightingale was, I mean, this is a woman who, she did a lot. She's a very interesting and complicated person. But one of the things that she did was to try to start a public health revolution to say we're doing sanitation completely wrong in army barracks, in army hospitals, in civilian hospitals, in everyday life. We're not taking sanitation seriously enough. Clean water, clean air. I mean, she was particularly interested in clean air, uh, open spaces, just uh, hand washing, hygiene, all of this stuff. And remember at the time, so this is the 1850s, there's no germ theory. There's no Louis Pasteur. You know, we don't know any of this to be true. It's, so it's statisticians observing macro data and trying to draw conclusions from it rather than having a really solid theory of what's going on. So that's why I think it's interesting. And she realised, so she's incredibly famous. She's the most famous woman in the British Empire except for Queen Victoria herself. But she's also a woman in a man's world. So she's doing things like she's, she manages to get this inquiry, public health inquiry set up to look into the problem, but she's not allowed to sit on it because <laughs> she's a woman. So she's behind the scenes trying to you know, get together this army of geeks to participate and to, to make these arguments. And she realises in order to win over the establishment, the medical and military establishment who are convinced that she's wrong, she is going to have to campaign using a very modern weapon, which is basically a very clever kind of pie chart. I mean, it's, it's a bit of an insult to call it a pie chart, but she uses a diagram. She uses a very elegantly designed diagram, which is revolutionary in the, the techniques that she's using. And in the podcast, and in fact, in the book as well, I pick apart what was going on, why she did this, how the diagram works, I talk about the ethics of the diagram. Like, is it, 
it's so clever. Is it a bit too clever? Is it a bit naughty? Does she cross a line? Does she not cross a line? Uh, and it just the, it's the story that keeps on giving. There's so, so much to say, but I find it fascinating and I find her fascinating. I mean, I, uh, I was listening to the, the episode in the car, um, I think even last night or the night before, and I got home and Googled uh, like Florence Nightingale, Gail Graff, and I'll put it up on Instagram or in the Facebook group, but it's just alarming. And I think you talked about that, you know, when we see something visual, it's just can be complete different than writing a three sentence paragraph or something like that. Absolutely. Um, and she, she knew this, which was, was, I mean, it seems obvious, but this was a radical idea in the 1850s, particularly in the UK. In France, they used a bit more data viz. But in the UK, all the statisticians were like, well, why not just use a table? Why not just yeah. write down the numbers? And there's just no idea that, that a picture might communicate in a different way and in a better way. But she really, she was so sharp on this. And she would write letters about this. I'm going to have my graphs framed. She talked about... Uh, whenever I am enraged, I revenge myself with a new diagram. She talked about sending it to Queen Victoria and saying, oh, she might look at it because it has pictures. I mean, she really understood the power of these graphs. But th- some of the more modern research that I discuss, from New York University did a study where they, they found that graphs tend to be much more persuasive than tables. I mean, there's, for, for better or worse, right? because it depends what's in the graph. Uh, and Tufts University Visual Analytics Lab, I love their, their study. They found that people have an opinion about a graph after seeing it for half a second, 500 milliseconds. So you just blink this graph at people. And they don't know what, what it's about. They can't read the axes. They know nothing about it. But they can say, oh, that's a mess, or, ooh, shiny. I mean, we have these incredibly rapid responses to graphs. And I mean, they're like a dual-use technology. They can lead us astray or they can show mm. us very clearly uh, the truth behind a situation. I mean, it's fascinating because when I look at it, it's like, oh, bloody more people are dying from uh, hygiene than like on the battlefield. <laughs> like it's just... Yeah, I mean, it's so, it's so clear. But as I describe in the podcast and in the book, there are other ways to draw that data. And if you draw the data in a different way you might end up reaching different conclusions. I mean, she was right. With hindsight, we know she was right. But she, she definitely loaded the dice in the way she built that graph in a very, yeah. very clever way. A, uh, a fellow business mentor of mine, uh, we actually served on a board uh, together. And at a board meeting, I, I made the comment jokingly, uh, well, the numbers never lie. And then Paul leaned over and said, until they do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. Well, one of the points that I make in uh, How to Make the World Add Up is that, uh, yeah, the numbers are, y- you can lie with numbers, sure. I mean, y- you can. it's easier to lie without them, to be honest, but you can lie with them. But one of the ways in which we often fool ourselves with numbers is simply um, by not looking hard enough at what's behind them. So to say, uh, if you're measuring, for example, you know, deaths in the army, which is what Florence Nightingale was doing. Well, one of, one of the really simple questions is, are you, me- are you measuring the, the absolute number of deaths or are you measuring the death rate? Because one of the reasons deaths started to fall in Nightingale's hospitals is there were fewer, fewer soldiers coming in. So obviously makes the, the hospitals run, you know, function in a better way. But also it just means like, if you don't have, if there's no one in the hospital, no one's going to die, right? <laughs> That's it's right, that yeah. simple. There's a lot of people in the hospital, then even a small death rate can be a lot of deaths. So that's one of the things that's going on. And very often we 
think we know what any statistic is a measurement or a count. And very often we, th- we, as- we leap to conclusions. We think we know what's being measured. We think we know what's being counted. And, uh, and, and we may well be wrong. I remember that just on a financial note, my, my first book, The Undercover Economist, I talked about the price of Amazon stock. And uh, this is, we didn't have good tools to track stock at the time, you know, the, the kind of retail tools that are so easy, easily available at the time. But I, so I was just looking up the price of Amazon stock in the late 90s and then later on in the early 2000s. And uh, the stock split several times. But I just, I didn't know that. And so I'm just looking, so, so the, there's a whole page in the original edition of The Undercover Economist. There's just, I mean, the basic argument is, is stands, but all the numbers are wrong because they don't adjust for the fact that you've split the stock. Mm. So if, you're gonna, if you've got a $100 stock and you split it in half, you know, that should be, then if it now is a $50 stock, that indicates that nothing really has changed. Not that the stock just halved in value. You know, so you, you, can, you can fool yourself very easily by looking at a number and thinking you understand what that number says, uh, and actually you're missing something super important. And just on the whole uh, data, charts, COVID, I mean, you're all over this COVID stuff. You talk in the book about when the uh, pandemic was first starting, and yeah. I believe there was a chart or graph that um, WHO shared or does that sound familiar? Am I getting my wires crossed? But there was a, a tweeted chart. Yeah. I'm, well, I'm not sure which one you're referring to. It might be the one that uh, Eric Fagelding, the epidemiologist, shared. There, there was one where he, he shared a, a chart from the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control in, in the US, basically saying that young people were as a, a much at risk of hospitalizations yes. as older that's people. A, yeah, that's and the a, the, and, and, Which is not true, by the way. It's complete nonsense. Um, but I think there's a lot of stuff going on there. So w- one of the things is, is that Fagel Ding, so he's an epidemiologist, he should know what he's talking about. But he was very much in the mindset of people aren't taking this seriously enough. And I think, you know, that I have some sympathy with that view. So March 2020, people aren't, they're not panicking enough, they're not worried enough. Um, I'm looking for an opportunity to tell them it's worse than they think. And because of that, because you, even when you're an expert, your emotions really influence what you know, the way you're processing information, he sees this graph that superficially seems to show that young people are just as much at risk from hospitalization as older people. Uh, and he doesn't, he, because he's looking for a message that says, this is bad, he just grabs the graph and retweets it and says, you know, young people should be frightened, they're just as much at risk. If it stopped for a second and gone, oh, that's a bit odd, I thought everyone said that the elderly were more at risk. And if he'd looked, he would have realised, oh, the the axes on the graph aren't consistent. So there's one bucket that's basically, I think, everybody between, uh, I mean, I forget the detail, but it's probably everyone between 18 and 45 is in one bucket. Then you're 45 to 55. So you're basically saying, if you compare all of the people under the age of 45, all of them, with the people in that just that 10-year bracket from 45 to 55, they're about equally likely... The, the, the total number in those groups that have been hospitalized is about the same. But actually you go, well, hang on a minute. There's way more people between the ages of 18 and 45 and they're out and about way more. The people in the age of 45 to 55 are already hiding. So you haven't proved at all 
that the disease is just as dangerous for the young as it is for the old. But he was influenced by his emotions, and we're all influenced by our emotions. Mm. And uh, yeah, that's that's the warning. Slow down. One of the first stories in the book is about an art, an expert being fooled by an art forger, and that's all about the the art forgery is isn't any good, but it is absolutely perfect. Uh, in if the aim is to to sort of touch all the emotional buttons of the expert and to make the expert believe that he's been right all along about some incredibly important thing. And because he's, his emotional reaction is overwhelming, he doesn't stop and go, not a very good picture though, is it? Which mm. is really the, the, the first thought that any art <laughs> expert should have. Yeah. Uh, how long did it take you to write the book? How long did it take to write? It's hard to say because some of, some of the stories in the book I've been playing with for a long time, yeah, years. Okay. Yeah. Um, some of the examples come from my experience of uh, of presenting more or less, which I've been presenting for, for 15 years now, nearly 15 years. But basically, I'd say um, about a year. Yeah. It slowed down because halfway through, I started writing cautionary tales, which of course is a you know a big project all, all of its own. What was interesting was that the the book was supposed to be sent to the publisher at the end of March 2020, and the UK lockdown in the last week of March 2020. And that was the point where I wrote to my publisher and said, you know what, I have a couple of extra things to say. Yeah. <laughs> so we delayed, not, not by long, just by a few weeks. Mm. And it was interesting because I thought, am I going to have to completely rewrite this book in the light of coronavirus? And the answer is no. Coronavirus turned out to be, uh, sadly, the perfect example of, of the kind of argument I was making, which is, it's not about. It's not just about winning some political argument. The data really matter. They are life or death stuff. Uh, when we don't have the data, bad things happen, and the data can. They're like radar or a telescope. They are showing us something that we can't see in any other way. And so, what I found is, as I went through the book, all I was having to do was to say here and there, oh, and this thing that's just happened with coronavirus. This is a really good example of this point. So it's a, it's a heck of a way to be proved right. I, I, I hate being proved right in this way, but yeah, mm. it wasn't very difficult to, to adapt the book to reflect coronavirus. Yeah, totally. All right, Tim, if you've got 10 more minutes, we will take a quick break. We'll come back. We'll talk about Galileo and how we can learn from this wonderful story. And I'll get Tim to also give us some clear and concise points of how to make the world add up and learn from numbers and statistics. If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com, click get help, and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers, and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. So the last example that I'm up to in the book, and again, I can't wait to finish it. You talked about Galileo and- uh, I feel like we, at this point we should go backwards and forwards, Galileo, 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 yeah. Figaro, no? <laughs> That's right, yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Um, <laughs> uh, why have you got a humour when you're an economist? Anyway, don't answer that. <laughs> so, yeah, sorry, it's, it's, it's not very on brand. Galileo, amazing guy. The story is, and this is, I think, exaggerated over the years- the story is that the, the cardinals persecuting him wouldn't look through his telescope. So he's in this big argument about whether the Earth is the centre of the universe. And, and he's saying, no, 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 it's, um, you know, the Earth goes around the sun and look, 
uh, I can show you other planetary bodies and you can see moons going around them and kind of isn't that sort of suggestive that it's all kind of like spheres with other spheres going around them and look look through the telescope I'll show you the moons of Jupiter and and the cardinals were like no we're not very interested in this observing stuff we're you know whatever the bible says we're not interested in looking so this story as I say is exaggerated over the years but people really like it because I think it makes them feel superior like oh in the modern world we look at the data we look at the evidence and we don't just dismiss things out of hand. And the point I make is we should not feel so smug because every day I see people who don't want to look through Galileo's telescope. They don't want to look at the evidence. They don't want to look at the data. And it's for the same basic reason. The cardinals didn't want to look through the telescope because they were afraid it was a trick and they would be fooled in some way. And that is the same reason why people don't want to look at the data. Again, they're afraid of a trick, as Daryl Huff, the author of How to Lie with Statistics, warned them. You know, don't look, you'll, be, you'll, be, you'll only be fooled. And that's a, a real tragedy. Because yes, the data can mislead us. Yes, there are people out there who are trying to trick us. But fundamentally, you can't understand the modern world, whether we're talking about the climate, whether we're talking about the, the virus, the economy, whether we're talking about finance, anything you want to understand about the modern world, mm. you are likely to, to understand it better if you've got good data. And there are people out there who are determined to scare you away from the data. And, and the argument of the book is it's not as hard as you think. A few simple principles. You can look at the data with some confidence and some curiosity and you can make sense of it. Yeah. And I think it's it's so fascinating because I make the joke on the podcast sometimes that, um, you know, in Australia, don't watch Sky News after 7pm because if you do, climate change isn't real, coronavirus uh, isn't real, uh, X, Y, and Z. Like, I've never seen Sky News get a scientist on who can who actually provides data on why climate change exists where they always yeah. have these, you know, the, the one in 200 scientists that comes in and has warped the data to sing to their narrative. Yeah, and it's tricky because I, I imagine, I, mean, I haven't watched Sky News after 7pm in Australia, but I imagine that uh, most scientists would, would be rather suspicious of an invitation to go on yeah. and would be reluctant to do it. Because and of like did, an ambush or whatever, yeah. Yeah, yeah, they, yeah they, well, you know, what's going on? And if they did appear, I, I imagine that listeners wouldn't be very interested because the what they said would seem so weird and threatening and alien. Uh, and, you know, and, and, and uh, we, we all have it in us to reject stuff that we, we think doesn't make any sense. Uh, and, you know, like, well, none of my friends believe this. None of the political leaders I, I respect believe this. None of the media sources I follow believe this. So I'm not going to believe it. That's, that's humans. That's not just climate skeptics. That's all humans. The, with the difference between the climate believers and the climate skeptics is that they're paying attention to different humans. Like they're paying attention to scientists rather, but they, it's still the same process. Like I, don't, I believe climate change is happening. I believe it's happening because of human activity, but I don't believe it because of the data. I'm just an economist. I don't understand the data. I believe it because I'm taking my cues from scientists, from climate scientists. So I don't, I don't want to suggest that that in some way is you know, morally superior or cognitively superior from someone who reaches their conclusions from watching Sky News. You know, I mean, I think I'm right, but I don't want to act like 
it's some dramatically superior reasoning process that brought me to my conclusions. And, to- and uh, you can, one of the arguments I make in the book is you can, you can get a long way making a particular argument by just being very selective about which facts you happen to want to talk about and which facts you happen to want to ignore. Mm. Um, yeah, the, my book is not, is, is not about trying to persuade other people. It's about trying to get your own head straight and think clearly yourself. Don't worry about trying to win an argument. Don't worry about trying to win, you know, stop some other person being an idiot. If you can stop being an idiot yourself, then that's enough. Yeah. Um, so that's, I mean, that's where I'm coming from. But that said, I think that if you are trying to persuade somebody, you do a lot better where if you don't seem to be trying to persuade them. Mm. Uh, if you're, if you're uh, calm, if you listen respectfully, uh, if you ask them to explain their point of view, not to justify anything, but just to explain it, I think that can be more effective and as well as being more pleasant. And the most, the most remarkable piece of persuasion I ever saw on climate change, I was at a conference and it was, a, it was in the Midwest of America and it was an, uh, an agribusiness. So they were trading agricultural commodities. Uh, so climate change, clearly really important for that business, but at the same time, just culturally, based in the Midwest, all instinctively climate skeptics. And so the conference organiser brought me in and another speaker in, I think with the aim of maybe shaking them up. But I wasn't talking about climate change at all. I was talking about other stuff. But the other speaker was from a, I forget whether it was a Swiss or German insurance company. And he was there. He had the, the classic sort of tiny glasses and the, the black polo neck. And he was, and he would, I think he was a, he had a doctorate. You know, the Germans love, love to list their doctorates when they have them. And, and he was super, super professorial. And all he did was explain what this insurance company was doing to change its pricing to reflect the risks of climate change. He didn't try and persuade anybody of anything. He was just like, he just treated it as though it's obviously happening. And uh, we're just telling you how we're, how we're adapting our pricing. And here's the data we're looking at. And here's what we're doing. And not, uh, not trying to convince anybody of anything or try to persuade them to change anything about their behavior. It was purely an information download. Mm-hmm. But there was something about the fact that like, oh, right, this guy, he's not telling, he's not telling us we're idiots. He's not trying to get us, he's not telling us anything, except he's just explaining how he's changing his business. And that you could see these light bulbs going on and people going, oh, interesting. It's not some liberal who's trying to tell me I'm an idiot. Mm. It's this super clever foreign guy um, telling me what he's doing and he doesn't care what we do. And that was, it was clearly persuasive, very interesting yeah. to watch. And, and that's that whole, like, there's this current thing online and just stay in your lane, stay in your lane. Uh, and I guess that's a, a good example. Before we go, can you maybe tell us quick bullet points, two or three big learning points that you might tell your children of how to view a statistic or numbers when you're first presented with them? Yeah, I would, I would emphasize the three C's. Oh, I'm going to write these down. So calm, context, curiosity. Yeah. So calm. Remember, our emotions really influence what we, what we think. And we reject or accept information often based on an emotional reaction. So the first thing is to notice your own emotional reaction. You see a social media post, a headline. It's designed to get you excited, angry, afraid, feel vindicated, feel joyful. They're all designed to make us feel something. So just notice that that you're having a feeling and then acknowledge it and then go back and have a look at the headline again. 
And I think already you'll be calmer and you'll be more likely to make a, a sensible assessment. The second thing is context. So this is all the kind of the nitty gritty stuff. But basically, is this number going up or down? Is this number big or small? What are the comparisons I should be making to other numbers to help it make sense? What's the definition? Like what are they actually measuring? What are they actually counting? Where did the number come from? All of these pieces of context. And again, very often when you see a number on social media or you see a number on TV, uh, it's often stripped of context. And it can be completely true, but without the context, you can't really make sense of it. So those are the three C's, calm, context. The third one, curiosity. And that's just the habit of mind of saying, I want to use these numbers to understand the world. I'm interested in the world. There's so many things I don't know. The numbers will help me understand a little of, of, of the, what I don't know and will just fill in some of those gaps. The world's an interesting place and I shouldn't feel threatened by surprising numbers. Instead, they would be like, ah, oh, that's interesting. Tell me more. Uh, if you approach numbers in that way rather than how can I pick up this number and use it to win an argument? How can I prove someone else wrong with this number? If, if instead you approach them with a spirit of curiosity, you are much more likely, I think, to think clearly and intelligently about the numbers that you're being confronted with. So there's three C's again, calm, context, curiosity, and then you're well on the way to making the world add up. Love it. Tim Harford, thank you so much. You can find Tim's book. We'll put a link in the show notes, How to Make the World Add Up, and also the legendary podcast, Cautionary Tales. Tim Harford, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. We acknowledge the dark and young people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits and pay respect to their elders past and present. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. My Millennial Money supports A21, a charity focused on abolishing slavery and human trafficking all over the world. Check out a21.org.au for more info. If you would like some other giving options or if you're unsure about which charity you can support, head to thelifeyoucansave.org.au. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation, or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive, Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, is an authorized representative of Money Sherpa, Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289. Hi, I'm Dori Shafrier. And I'm Kate Spencer. And we are the hosts of Forever 35. And today we're talking about Club Med, the best all-inclusive getaway for families. Today, Club Med has nearly 70 resorts worldwide, from beachside resorts in the Caribbean and Mexico, to magical locations in the Maldives and Morocco, to ski resorts in the mountains from Canada to the Alps. Between their all-inclusive family programming, wellness offerings, land and water sports, and their French heritage-inspired food and drink offerings, Club Med is the best way to elevate your family getaway, no matter which location you're at. To learn more, visit clubmed.us.